since the governor, Bennett Whitehouse, older brother, Ben Whitehouse, um, and we're also, instead of in a hotel lobby, we're, Todd, we, we have a penchant of recording with you in the strangest places. Last time was in a noisy hotel lobby. I love that hotel lobby. That was a great place, that place. It, it was good. There was a lot of ambient noise. Ice making machines, bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pool table. Remember how hip that place was? That was, that was where the hip people stay. That's, that's yeah. why we're there. That's why yeah, we're there. No, that's, that's now not why I'm there. Uh, now we're in our homes, I, I suppose. Are you at home or are you in, in the office? Or? No, I'm at home. I've been uh, sheltering in place for a while. We're doing pretty well. We've kept our uh, infection rate about the same for the last month and a half. So we're probably leveled off. But people are pretty good here with um, social distancing. You can kind of do that out in the West. We got lots of space. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you do. Yeah. So how is this? I mean, Jimbo and I have talked about this. We, we did a, um, a webinar. We kind of put on a, a weekly webinar starting about a month and a half ago, kind of understanding that this was a new a different risk, a new risk, maybe not different in, in the framework for how you respond to it, but just doing the sense of people didn't really know how to respond. And we felt like um, the collective knowledge of our clients connecting on a, a webinar every week would really go a long ways in serving each other. And, and I think it did that. Yeah, smart idea. That's a good idea. We, we came out on the other end of that kind of with, with we haven't, we've kind of pressed pause on the weekly, but one of the things we thought through was, and it was spurred from a client of mine, um, Shalomith Gonzalez, sorry, Lee company. She, she called one morning and she was a little frustrated. And, and I, and I sensed that in a lot of folks who said, look, usually, you know, safety is a tough sell, but usually we've got, um, and cultural, cultural change takes time to affect. Um, and right now we're operating with the request of our people to change a lot of the way they think and a lot of the way things they do, but in a really compressed time period. Um, and so that's most of the frustration, but our, our sense is the framework for how you respond is, is largely the same. I mean, what, what do you see about this risk? I guess is a good way to put it. It's different than other risks. Well, so that's a great question because I really think we're dealing with three problems. So three crises, what is the poor of crises? Crises? Crisis. Crises. Yeah, crises. You're the doctor. Um, yeah, well, I, I just had to think that out loud. Fish, fishes. So that's right. So there's the, there's the global pandemic, the health crises. There's the economic crises. And then there's the psychological crises. And these three crisis points are all separate, but combined, intertwined. So we have to deal with really three upset situations and they're not aligned they're happening at different times and so people are are freaking out over the pandemic stuff and then that'll level out a little bit and then they freak out over the economic stuff and that one is pretty scary and then there's all the uncertainty that impacts the psychological stuff family friends health parents i mean there, there's just a lot of stuff going on here and I actually think you guys on the risk side are probably more teed up to solve this problem than probably other people, because really it's all uncertainty. And if you followed, and you guys probably know this, but if you followed, gosh, probably eight years ago, 
the EPRI came out with a, the Department of Defense came out with a, a, a term they called VUCA. Are you guys familiar with VUCA? V-U-C-A? Yeah. Which is because I listened to it on your podcast. Oh, yeah. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And what they said is when you're dealing with the, that kind of goal, and that pretty much sums up all three crises that we're dealing with, when you're dealing with that, you have to really think about risk in a way that's probably different than we've traditionally thought about it. So you have lots of decisions to make, but not much information. So you have to make decisions quicker based upon more flimsy reasons. And because you're making quick decisions based upon low levels of data, you have to be incredibly agile and be able to change, flex, retract those decisions as more data comes in. What I've seen, and I'd be curious to see what you guys are seeing, is the organizations that are doing well with this are doing well because they learn well. They're super, super, super good at talking to the people who do the work and they're gathering real-time information certainly every day and probably a lot of them every hour on how things are going and what they need to change. And that's actually probably the strongest tool you have to manage this notion of VUCA. You want to think wide and not narrow. And think about your, the, the clients that you've been getting together with on these, these web sessions. The ones that are handling it well are probably thinking wide, not narrow. They're definitely recognizing that experts live at every level of the organization. And so they have these really diverse groups of people that are helping them make strategic decisions. And then ultimately, they're really focused on um, managing learning and being super agile, super flexible, or super adaptive. Uh, that was a really long answer to that question, but I'd be curious to see what you thought. Well, I think there's there's a lot in there, and I you know I I think a lot of the the um, the negative thoughts that come into it are circle around the uncertainty of it. Yeah. And and one of the things that we're trying to do is is get people to see that the same framework they use to manage risk before this crisis is really the same framework that they need to use to manage it now. And if they can do that, then hopefully that removes some of the uncertainty that, that surrounds it. Um, I think and, you're and right. I think you're right. I think they have to do it faster though. What are they saying? Yeah, well, part of the challenge was that the the information that we received in advance, you know, as we if we've navigated this has has varied. You know, everything from you don't need masks to now you do, you should wear masks. But I, I think what we've observed is that people are pretty flexible. I mean, and and I would say maybe not even by choice. It's just that through the course and scope of any given business, there are demands that operate in real time and that, that workers have to respond to. Um, I'd say that the, maybe, maybe one of the biggest differences is the feel between organizations. So the feel between an organization and the leadership team there that trusts that their employees, if equipped with the proper tools and knowledge, can adjust accordingly to Jimbo's kind of commentary historically about you can't manage the sum of all human behavior. Um, I think they have a better feel and, and more of a grounded optimism 
um, that maybe folks who don't have the rapport um, don't have um, maybe the the uh, existing culture where there's a bridge between uh, management and employees and a trust that their employees can execute. I think I think those are some of the biggest differences we see in the in the organizations we're engaged with. But let's go up a level of abstraction on that. So that I think those are really great observations. Let's go up one level and say, what's the difference? And my guess is, is that the organizations that have the strong engaged workers are constantly pulsing workers at all level to gather real-time data about what risk is happening. And the organizations that don't have um, engagement are, are trying to use traditional sort of top-down decision-making methods. And those probably, I think it's fair to say, at least for the conversations I've had in the last two months, it's fair to say those top-down decision-making um, tools aren't terribly effective in a crisis. Yeah, I mean, what we've seen is, you know, communication is one of those words like culture that right. gets, it just gets exhausting, but it's, it's hard to come up with um, something that identifies what we're talking about better. What we've seen is companies who have really responded well embrace from go the need to communicate. I mean, unfortunately, there are some who've said, look, it's not an issue with us right now. Um, we don't want to talk about it we're going to kind of hide under, under the, the covers and, and hope and pretend that this isn't going to happen. And, and the way risk plays out, um, maybe it won't. Um, yeah. but, but, but the ones that we see who are feeling more comfortable and who I think have the strongest defenses in place, um, I think of a lot of our captive clients who are the presidents are putting out an every other day video to employees. Yeah. And, and I think they're not going for production value. They're, they're going for honesty and truth. They're speaking about furloughs and layoffs and everything yeah. they're doing to avoid that. And, and I think that matters. And, and so um, they've created those open lines of communication, um, you know, back and forth between employees. And at least from our perspective, that seems to be a better equation for navigating this um, than otherwise. And I think the feedback they're getting is also creating a more, um, as you say, a resilient organization. Doesn't mean they're not going to have positive cases, but I think the feel around when they do is going to be much more uh, grounded in optimism and positive. Yeah, I think what you said was, was a really good observation. Um, that, that, I think, is the crux of it, is, is that ability for an organization to be adaptive is really the side. So the increased capacity they need for the crisis they're going to get from the people who do the work. And, and that's what you're seeing. I, the, the counter to that, I think, is even more interesting. And it's organizations that are not very adaptive are really, really having a difficult time. <laughs> yeah, I bet that's true. And, and I, think the, um, I think one of the things that, that you really see, and I, I think you made this point um, on one of your Corona cast about just the difficulty in, in, in devising work rules, um, yeah. you know, to, to fit a, a given situation. And this is, this is a, you know, a great example of that because so much of what we are going to rely on is employees taking the responsibility to engage in behaviors that maybe they weren't so great at before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, that's so interesting to me is that, 
the traditional rules just go out the window. Um, and, and, and it makes you think a couple things. One is that do, do those rules, were those rules functioning very well before this happened? And secondly, we really do count on workers solving problems when, when things are tough. I, I think the most interesting thing to me to watch in this has been just the, the stunning, stunningly important part that leadership plays because we're seeing such re readily available examples of just crappy leadership and how crappy leadership has really, really significant consequence. So you've got presidents of companies that are doing an every other day video, and they're probably saying three things. This is what we know, this is what we don't know, and this is what we're doing about it. I mean, if you just came on every other day and said that to your company, that would reduce so much stress and reduce so much uncertainty just by giving that information but that's missing sort of in the grand picture. Like we don't have that, that understanding for the country as a whole. And that's, that's been really, really difficult. And it's costing us a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so there's a tremendous amount of noise and clutter that, that I think around a lot of safety and risk initiatives and efforts. And, and there, if this was an example of, I mean, this is a great example of just the amount of noise and clutter that can come into play. But the thing that, that encourages me is that so if you hit those three things that leadership should be chiming into their employees about each week the, the reality is the defenses you have to put in place i mean i know there's nuance and complexity to executing but um, we were on a call with the medical director of a hospital the other week and and he said look if people just don't touch their face and if they wash their hands that would knock out 99 percent of these cases and so I, I don't want to oversimplify it because I think execution and understanding can, can, can be two, two separate things, but it, it's edifying. It's, it's encouraging to me to say, you know, with all the complexity around this, all the noise and clutter at the end of the day, what is it that we have to do as an organization? And it, I think it's, some, it's a really good question, right? I mean, and, and then I would ask this question to you guys, just cause I'm curious what you think, what's our ethical responsibility to the workers? I mean, I think that's a that's a really valuable question because because so I've been talking to these epidemiologists for all this stuff, and I had a guy tell me the other day that if you would wear a mask and I would wear a mask, the chance of exposure to COVID nineteen goes down twelvefold mm -hmm. because the mask keeps my spit in my mouth and it keeps your spit in your mouth. I mean, that's kind of how masks work, right? Yes, yeah, so really. Let me answer that a little bit with something we teed up for our webinar last week or the week before in which we said, you know, a lot of companies have mission, vision, and values. And if this was ever a time to lean into, if there was ever a time to lean into it, this would be now. So hopefully you've got a decent set of mission, you know, vision and values, but in a part of those typically involves something around community, serving right. community, being an asset to the community. Um, and so from an ethical perspective, um, I think the obligation is already inherent in organizations, at least on paper. The question is, um, do they look to that as kind of an anchor or something to ground them in their decision making in times like these? And, and, yeah. and that's another. And we, yeah, and we would have, you know, I would argue that at least in our client base, um, you know, if asked and pressed, 98 percent of them would would put their employees out there as their most valuable asset. Um, uh, yeah. And so, 
so if you don't have an ethical obligation to protect your most valuable asset, then what do you have an ethical obligation for? Hundred percent agree. I, I mean, and it's it's. I think that question's really it's a valuable question. I mean, it's, it's a question that's on the radar screen all of a sudden in a way that it's never been on the radar screen before. It's always been sort of a thought experiment. Now it's real. I mean, it's, it's, it's real. They've got people out, you know, out in the world interfacing and this is pretty scary. It's certainly scary from a pandemic standpoint. It's scary from an economic standpoint. And there's a lot of psychological crap going on right now. It's it's a it's a weird time to be alive. It's my first pandemic, so I don't have a lot of skill. <laughs> ours ours too. Ours oh, too. Really? You're, you're greenies too. Yeah, we are. We're you know we come across as much more experienced in these matters, but <laughs> but, but we're we're neophytes as well. Well, Todd, one of the things I heard you say on on your Corona cast was that there you know there there are no half measures in crisis and. And, and I think that's <laughs> uh, well. For those of you who are just listening and can't see, um, uh, he is now transitioned from baseball cap to beret. Um, that's right. Is that I change the hats. I change hats on Zoom meetings. It's it's what I do. <laughs> I would encourage you guys to do the same thing. I'm not even done. That that's looks good. That's oh, that's good. And I've got a uh, a paper clip. Yeah, look, that's a binder clip. That's a that's that's a paper clip for astronauts. Yeah, that's called adapt. That's called adaptability. That is together. So, so the idea that there's no half measures really comes from this notion that you you'll never have full enough data. So the the problem in a crisis is you never, if you wait for the information to come, it's too late. Yeah. And so you have to make quick decisions. And, and the problem is, is that quick decisions will always be over reactions or underreactions in retrospect. Yeah. So you overreacted to the problem or you underreacted to the problem. The crazy thing, and this is the part I want to sort of emphasize, is that if you overreact and have lots of capacity and don't need it, from a risk management standpoint, you just won the game. Right? I mean, that's a win. So if nobody dies or gets hurt, that's a win. It's not a waste, it's a win. Right. And that's, I think that that's hard because capacity's capacity's really expensive to keep, but it's super expensive to not have. That's an interesting, you know, that comment made me the, the immediate example that just came to mind with having too much capacity. It's sounds a little bit like um, paying too much on your taxes throughout the year and then getting a big check at the end. I, I'd rather have my money all year and <laughs> and maybe. So I don't know if there's a if if uh, if you follow there, but uh, oh no, I'm with you. I, I just there's not an answer, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think the crazy think thing is if you don't if you don't need capacity, you don't need it, right? Yeah. I th I but in our but in our world, and you guys, this is what you do for a living. In our world, if they don't need the capacity, they've won the game. Hmm. Yeah. If they need the capacity, you can make a pretty good case that the worst thing happened. Right? I mean, the bad outcome happened. And then the capacity is an important thing as well. But if you haven't don't need it, like, you know, if I have if I have extra toilet paper mm. <laughs> and, and don't need it, I'm winning. 
Yeah, well, I, it's interesting. Or, or I'm constipated. You could also put that. That's also I could go in <laughs> well, there as well. Well, well I, think, I think one of the interesting things about that relative to, to this is just the latent nature of exposure. And, like, you know, the you can, you know, be exposed to somebody and then you don't develop symptoms and you don't get ill for X number of days and the uncertainty of asymptomatic spread and all of those things add up to, it's not like sticking your finger in an electrical socket. Right. You know, there's no, there's no immediate feedback that says I need to put on a rubber glove or I need to not do that again. Right. Right. And, and so to me, that's, that's really the call to, if you're going to do something, you got to go all the way because right. it, it's an all the time, every time for the one time kind of play. Right. Yeah. And that's hard, right? That's super hard to manage. And that kind of complexity breeds to a great extent, all the things we're talking about, uncertainty, freak out levels are high, emotional responses, fear. I mean, all, those things, all those things. Yeah. The VUCA stuff, they're all pretty normal. And, and the, to me, what's interesting is when people act like they're surprised by a pandemic, this isn't surprising. I mean, this happens and that we knew it could happen. What surprises me is the complete lack of capacity for when it did happen. And that's what's interesting. Companies that had lots of capacity that were ready for this, that are, you know, they were ready for uncertainty. They're really in a different place. I mean, they're, it's, it's interesting to watch them function because they function well. Yeah. It's interesting to observe different leadership and, and, organizational personality we'll call that that's the new word for culture organization yeah. because yeah, culture's old yeah it, it, interesting to see new organization you know organizational personality because some leadership peace of mind is worth an incredible amount and so what we see is some clients investing tens of thousands of dollars in um, infrared scanners and you know monitoring temperatures going above and beyond taking approaches of look expense is not an issue um, and, and then others we see kind of sticking to the bare basics, if, if that. Um, so, so kind of interesting to observe how folks respond just based off of the need for um, peace of mind. But I, I would also say this, this whole experience has been really encouraging to me in the sense of we've gotten to see, I heard this the other day, character, characters revealed in times of difficulty and, and in times of great good. Um, and what, what we're seeing is companies who are increasing wages. That's a beautiful new hat addition. Thank you. Um, seeing companies increase wages for construction workers, 27%, you know, and, and that's for those who come to work and, and paying full wages for those who don't feel comfortable coming to work. Um, you know, handwritten notes to all 600 employees by uh, employees, spouses and girlfriends by their, uh, the CEO of, you know, electrical and mechanical contractor we work with and yeah. along with a $50 gift card. And, and wouldn't you know, the $50 gift card people kind of cared about, but mostly they appreciated the note that said, thank you for lending us your spouse and your boyfriend yeah. and your girlfriend to come keep our business going and help our community continue to march on. And um, so I think there's been a lot of encouraging, um, encouraging news in this and, and encouraging representations of, of the types of folks who lead a lot of the companies we work with. And that kind of leadership really, really shows out in this kind of a event. And that's, that's meaningful. And one of the things you guys have done as a company is you've really kept this discussion of risk alive 
And so in good times, you talked about risk and capacity. And the payoff is, is in bad times, that risk and capacity conversation you had started to really have legs on it. And so now you're in a place, I mean, think about what you guys have done. You're in a place where you've talked about creating capacity and managing risk, and now they need capacity and risk is high. You're still there helping them through those times. And in say what you will, but um, it's a pretty good time to be associated with the notion of capacity. I mean, because now that conversation, which a year ago, people would say, I don't know what you mean. You know, what do you mean? Now everybody knows what we mean by capacity. Yeah. So that's, kind of, that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, that that's true. I, you know, I heard from, uh, from one of my, um, buddies who's a medical affairs director for the local hospital system who said, um, Hey, what do you know about businesses and how they're responding to this? Because the chamber of commerce has called us, everybody's freaking out. They don't know what to do. And I'm like, look, we've been having these conversations for eight weeks. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, that most, most of the companies that we, we, we work with in the middle market are, um, you know, they've been adapting to this for a while and we've been having these conversations, but there are a lot of people out there who are like, Oh my gosh. Um, you know, th this isn't, um, you know, look the other way. We got, we got to do yeah. something. Yeah. Kind of hoping, it, hoping it'll go away. Todd, what do you think? I mean, wh when you, when you think about what makes, um, Jimbo and I have talked about this a bit, but, but different styles of leadership where some are, um, maybe they're super, super smart and they don't need anybody's help. And that's played out through their life. So they don't have to ask for other opinions or ask to the opinions of their employees or, or maybe there's, um, may, maybe there's a lack of confidence. And so that's why they don't want to appear fragile or, um, or, or what do you, what do you think some of the reasons are for not creating a conduit of, of communication with employees? Cause the flexibility not to beat a dead horse, but, the, the, the flexibility that and adaptability we've seen, seen has largely been driven um, by that conduit of very real time, very quick inter, interchange of information. Um, and where that's absent, that's really problematic. What do you think creates some of those obstacles? So I think the big one is fear. I think some leaders are, are, are really fearful. And so they're afraid to commit to an action because they're afraid it may be the wrong action. And so then, therefore, in their fear of committing to an action, they sort of go to paralysis and do nothing. Leaders that are bold enough to do, well, to really do what we've talked about this, they understand that they'll never get complete enough information. And they understand that the people who work for them really are the place to go for as much immediate data as they can get. And they build those feedback loops into their system. Those leaders are going to bubble to the top as heroes, as, as geniuses. As, it's funny because they would hate both those terms. They're going to bubble to the top as good leaders. And what's funny is if you talk to these leaders that have done an especially good job at this, 10 bucks says they're going to tell you, I, I don't think I did a good job. I just dealt with it every single day. And they kind of kept up that mantra. They told people what they knew. This is what we know. This is today's reality. This is what we don't know. 
and this is what we're doing about that question. And that's, that's really all you can hope for, right? Because if you tell people what they, if you tell people what you know, that's what they want to hear. That's what workers want to hear. They want to hear what you know. So if you tell them what you know, then you're telling them what they want to hear. And if you tell them what you don't know, then you're doing two things. One is you're admitting there is uncertainty in the world. And these are the things we're thinking about. And then you talk about your path forward for that day. And what's amazing is that that path forward changes. So, you know, it's what we did last week is different than what we're doing this week. And it's a pretty good bet what we do next week is going to be different than what we did this week because we're getting smarter and bolder and there's a certain amount of fatigue. I mean, you put people in this much stress for this long and this, this sort of chronic stress starts to wear down and people start to take, um, they start to, to not believe the risk is real. Um, I mean, in a way it's kind of risk homeostasis. They normalize to the risk and they start to do things that they probably wouldn't have done a week ago. And you're starting to see that for sure. Um, and as we open up and as more and more people interface, the thing that um, I find concerning is that the virus really hasn't changed. It's a virus and we don't know very much about it. In fact, every day we're learning more and more frightening crap about the virus. What's changing is that w the belief somehow that we're in control, I, can, what, I don't even know what word to use, Alex, the, the belief that somehow the virus has been tamped down is not true. It's, it's that we're normalizing and building systems where we can manage the risk better, right? So if we are really conscious of, there's a article by this, uh, what, I, I, I think it's, it was called a comparative epidemiologist. I think that's what they called it. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but they took all the models of uh, exposure. It's, it's really kind of a uh, interesting, from a risk management standpoint, it's a really interesting article. And they sort of brought together what the models all talked about. And they talked about that, you know, uh, really what you manage on a construction site is time, distance, and shielding. So as long as you manage those three things, you have the least amount of exposure to another person's spit, right? That's, that's time. Distance, you're far away from people. So there's social spacing in the workplace. And then whatever kind of shielding, masks, plexiglass, plastic, wh whatever the shielding is, those three things dramatically reduce the ability for you to be uh, exposed. And that's interesting because that's also the same rules we use uh, for radionuclides, time, distance, and shielding. And to see that brought up in a, in a biohazard like that is pretty interesting. Because you said, as long as you don't, as you wash your hands and don't touch your face, it is super hard not to touch your face. Right. It's like your best, it's like your second favorite thing to touch. <laughs> I'm giving you some time on that. Yeah, we, we, we got it. Well. Yeah. I love I love the I love the simplicity of how this conversation has evolved. Um, one is is just sort of directive to management, you know, um, the the three little bullets of what you ought to be talking about 
almost daily, if not yeah. weekly. And then, and then the three sort of vision items of, of, of time and distance and shielding, um, you know, from a risk management framework standpoint, um, because one of the things I'm sure you've seen is, is there are all sorts of uh, COVID response playbooks out there. And, oh, my God, some of them are 400 pages long. And yeah. work, workers can't read 400 pages, much less four pages. Yeah, nor, um, nor do they want to. And I'm not sure they're good, Jimbo. I, the ones I've been looking at are, it's kind of like do the same crap more, do the same crap harder. And I'm not sure that's the right message. I think, I think what we want to sort of say is, you know, what are, the, what are the three most important things I can do immediately? And what can I do on any job site anywhere? Right? And then if there's specific stuff you can do based upon the workplace, that's great. Let's build that in. Let's put in any protection we can put in. But ultimately, people really want desperately to feel safe and to sort of get back to some kind of um, routine. I, I don't yep. think we're. I don't think we'll go back to normal. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure normal. Well, I don't, I don't know what normal was anyway, but I'm not sure normal will be the same at least for a while. Like we were joking before you turned the recording on. You know, travel's dramatically changed. I mean, it's just dramatically changed. Yeah. And if you don't have to travel, like the idea of getting on a plane, you're really going to have to have something super important to get on a plane for. Yeah. Well, I think the notion of feeling safe is interesting because I think um, I, ha I have heard certain people say, well, you know, I'm working here and I, and I feel safe and, and, and I want to question that a little bit. Yeah. Do you do you feel safe because of the defenses that are in place, or do you feel safe like you say you feel safe in your home? Um, because I like to say feeling safe adds up to nothing. It's it's what's behind it. Um, right. You know, if it's the security system and the uh, neighborhood that I live in and uh, the door locks that I have, that's that's one thing. But if just because nobody's ever broken into my house, that's quite another thing. Right. Well, th there's a difference between feeling safe and actually being safe, right? And it's crazy because feeling safe isn't the same as being safe. And yet, if you don't feel safe, then you probably aren't safe. So it gets a little bit of a kind of what is the sound of one hand clapping. To me, what's interesting is, and you just said it, is, is protection really is the presence of controls, not the absence of the risk. So the risk is there. The risk is always there what we can manage then are the controls. So if we have the, if we have the best controls we can have in the, in the system, then that's really the best we can hope for. Um, and you've said it a million times, we don't get to be in charge of behavior as much as we want to be in charge of behavior. People are in charge of their own behavior. So right. they're, they're going to determine whether they touch their face, pick their nose, um, anything else. Yeah. Fill in your bike here. I think the feeling of safe is is going to progress hand in hand with a reduction in uncertainty as we progress through the weeks and we gather more and more information. Even anecdotally, the things that I observe is we've got a lot of clients and, and granted, you know, we have a lot of construction job sites with one or two positive cases. It doesn't hold a candle to the positive cases that we see counted up in manufacturing. Right. So the feeling that you get depends on where you are and, and your exposure and the degree of uncertainty that's been reduce based off experience 
And we know, and, we know outside's better than inside. We know that HVAC is the enemy. I mean, we, we're starting to really understand. Um, well, I would say there's a lot of people in our world, um, especially environmental people who've understood, you know, HVAC systems and hazards and, we have the knowledge out there. We're starting to see it now at a bunch of different levels. And that's, that's going to be good. What scares me, you guys, is how long this is going to go. Because really smart, like way smarter people than us, really smart people are telling me that this is going to be a 36-month ride. Hmm. And that we're going to see pretty significant um, uncertainty for about 36 months. Even even if there's a vaccine and my Los Alamos buddies are telling me that there probably won't be a vaccine for this because it's coronaviruses are really, really difficult to write vaccines for, hmm. you know, they don't really have one for the common cold and this sort of falls on the common cold side of the house, not on the, um, you know, other side of the house. It's easier to solve for. So I don't know. It, it, it there's just a lot of stuff here that I, it's, it's going to be really interesting. And it's going to depend on how comfortable a company is in an uncertain future and how well they can survive in an uncertain future. That, that just bums us out, you know, listening to oh, I mean, <laughs> it is, I mean, it is, it's, it's frightening. But it's, uh, it's, I think it's important to talk about. I mean, I think it makes it, it, I think talking about it allows us the ability to sort of strategize for it. Well, I, I agree that like um, sort of re real, you know, thought provoking um, discussion is, 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 is what you want. You don't want speculation or, you know, much better to go, you know, we need a plan for the long haul and hope, hope we wind up somewhere well short of that. Um, Cause I think that's, you know, that's what people, people want, people want hope and optimism and they want to, um, you know, be prepared. And if, if something changes to the positive in the near term, then that, that's, that makes us all feel good. I agree. Well, Todd, um, I think we've uh, we've rolled on with forty-five minutes of of your time, and um, always always good catching up with you. I'm I'm interested to see how things progress and um, and how a little bit of the narrative changes as more information comes out about fatality rates, what's being classified as a COVID fatality, and because that's a whole other part of the conversation. The stakeholders and competing interests involved in um, and, and depending on who you ask, what, what direction the, the narrative wants to be taken. And I'm just interested in, in more and more truth as time, um, uh, passes, um, that allows us to respond and allows our clients and, and communities to respond in a, in a, a reasonable way. Mm -hmm.